Good morning, everyone. I trust you're all well. Yeah, you've had a, a good morning, the best morning ever. You've had your breakfast. You're feeling energized and, and ready for a, a brilliant first day of the week. Um, and looking forward to the end of half term as well and all the kids going back to school, I'm, I'm hoping. Um, a little bit about me. My name, for those of you that don't know, is, is Jeremy. Um, I'm part of the leadership here at Real Life Church. I am married to Becky, who's sitting in the front row, and between the two of us, we've managed to somehow raise three children, somewhat successfully. Um, Joel is 16, and he's busy with his A-levels, so we, at the moment, we're, we're panicking about this next stage of his life, the fact that uh, he's preparing for some tests in May, which you'd think aren't important, but actually those play into his UCAS points and his applications for university, and we're panicking not about whether he'll get into a university, but how on earth as a family we'll survive him being at university and hopefully get through the end financially, emotionally, and everything else. We've got Caitlin, who is 14 years old, and I think she's out at youth at the moment. Um, So she's in year 10. She's halfway through her GCSE. GCSEs, and we're panicking about what's going to happen with her at A-levels. And then um, we, we had both of those children while we were living in South Africa. Um, and we moved to the UK about ten and a half years ago. And while we were in the UK, after two years in Cornwall, we moved up to Birmingham. And um, Becky and I looked at each other and we said, you know what, we're still skint, but maybe, maybe we've got just enough money to have a third child seven years after our last one. That's a great idea. So we had Isaac, and Isaac's in the service today, so he's going to be listening to me. So I've got to be very careful what I say about him. Um, But yeah, Isaac's been a joy to us over the last eight years. He's in year three, and uh, he loves school. So that's a little bit about me. Where do I work? I'm doing this, by the way, um, because part of the sermon series around our soundtrack is to just make sure that, that you guys are getting to know the people in leadership in the church. So if you're wondering why on earth is he talking about his work right now, that's, that's um, why. So yeah, I'm, I'm not working full-time for the church. I work full-time for an organization called Business in the Community, which is effectively a, a network of around 700 businesses from large corporates all the way down to small-medium enterprises. And uh, we work across the UK as businesses to try and make the world a little bit better. I think that's summing it up in a nutshell. We, we work um, on social and environmental issues, and we believe that businesses have as much, if not more, responsibility than government and individuals to ensure that we have a planet, that we have societies that are good for people to live in, not just five years from now, but 15, 20, 25, 30 years from now and on into the future. So that's a little bit about what I do, and I I have the privilege of working with about 30 of those businesses, mostly around the West Midlands, challenging them, encouraging them, helping them to um, build responsible business into their core strategies. Now, I don't want to bore you with the detail of that because it's a a field which I'm learning about all the time, and, and we as a nation are learning about all of the time. What about... My soundtrack. Now, when I was asked to, to share, what, what am I listening to right now? The honest truth is, I don't have a clue what I'm listening to right now. Um, it feels like the only stuff I'm listening to is ambient. It's stuff that's there, not out of choice, but because it's just 
on. We are so busy at the moment. But if I'm honest and I think, yeah, what, what am I, what, what's kind of the soundtrack that, that plays over in my head when I've got space? Um, I can't think of a song that everybody would know, but it's by a, an artist, an American artist called Dustin Kensrue, and um, it's, the song's called It's Not Enough. And it's essentially a, a retelling of Ecclesiastes. It's, a, it's a, a sort of story of how he's pursued all of these things, and none of that is enough. None of that is enough. It just doesn't satisfy. Um, and you think, okay, well, great. You could read out, out the Bible, but he does a remarkably good job of making it sing to your, your heart. And so I guess that's the one that, that comes to mind whenever I think, what's, what's playing in my head um, right now? But soundtracks are an interesting thing, and I think that's, this is where I want to start. I want to start with maybe the influences on my musical soundtrack, and then let's look a little bit at Israel and what their soundtrack looked like, because we're going to be focusing in on Psalm 125, which, as we know, is part of the the Psalms of Ascent, and those are songs for pilgrims, essentially. These are songs that that Israel sang in their day-to-day, specifically when they were on pilgrimage to Jerusalem and up to the Temple Mount. These are songs that they sang, and we have songs that we sing, Um, but we inherit a lot of our taste. We inherit a lot of the things that determine for us what we like, and I think my dad was very influential when I was young, when I was tiny, and I really didn't understand music and what was cool to an 80s kid, um, I was listening, unfortunately, to Elvis, The Shadows, and ABBA, because those were the bands that my dad loved. And he was really proud of this Hartashi, um, I suppose the equivalent of what was a boombox, um, which you could put cassettes in. We'd go off to St. Francis Bay. He had a holiday house there where we could go. And um, we'd listen to The Shadows or Abba or, or Elvis. And um, those are the, the songs that I used to sing when I was little because Dad sang them. Um, but what I didn't realize is there was a whole other culture that grew up. While my dad was listening to them, other people were listening to Supertramp. The Doors, The Beatles, Led Zepp, Pink Floyd, Thin Lizzy. And I only found out about these bands when I was kind of a little bit older at school. And I had cool kids who were raised by cool dad, not conservative rock and roll dad. Um, and they started bringing that stuff to school. And it, it's just weird to me. You know, you, you grow up in a society where there's a lot of contemporary music being thrown your way. I grew up in South Africa, so you'd think, well, maybe we didn't get the same music. We did. We got pretty much all the same stuff as, as you did. The only stuff we didn't get was that which was banned by our government because they were singing out against the apartheid regime. But you know what? We'd go and we'd get friends who were going overseas to smuggle that stuff in and we'd listen to it as well. So we got all of the stuff that you listen to. But there's all that contemporary stuff going on. But actually, all of my friends were listening to the music that their parents thought was cool. Um, and I don't know if I see that much today. I'm not sure my kids are listening to the music I think is cool. They think it's pretty much boring and old-fashioned. But anyway, that's some of the influence. But then as I was getting through into my teens and 20s, these are the bands that I think really resonated with me. And I guess they come from grunge or political rock or alternative rock um, and Aussie rock, which I hope some of you have heard of. But bands like U2, Simple Minds, Midnight Oil, The Dead Kennedys, In Excess, Hoodoo Gurus, 
Ganga Jang, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Rage Against the Machine, R.E.M., The Pixies, The Violent Femmes, Sisters of Mercy. Not much pop in there. That's the way I grew up. I was growing up on the beach. I spent a lot of my years at art school. There was a lot of darkness going on, a lot of depth, a lot of kind of thinking about the meaning of life and um, mixed up with hedonism and all sorts of other things. It was crazy, Um, but there was a lot of meaning in a lot of the words. A lot of those bands felt invested in their music and in their lyrics and in their purpose. It was more than just entertainment. And I think that resonated with me. And the truth is that part of my salvation story was to do with music. I had a a friend, who's now my brother-in-law, who was instrumental in my salvation, although he didn't really know it at the time. He was um, pretty much sort of key to an alternative Christian music scene in Port Elizabeth. He, He was quite connected to some sort of mail-order catalogs in the States and connected to the Christian music scene there and was bringing in music which he felt kind of lined up with the music that we were listening to from bands like Rage Against the Machine or um, Huda Gurus or or U2 and kind of trying to find music that would resonate with us. Um, and, And that was brilliant. You know, there's not many people that do that kind of thing for a, for a community, but he was amazing. But before I knew that about him, I was a keen surfer, and I used to surf a, a number of competitions, and strangely enough, some of the best competitions that were all organized were organized by a group of people called Christian Surfers. I mean, you can't get more blatant than that. They weren't trying to be undercover or anything. We surf and we're Christians, and... Um, we, we, we let people know about it. No private faith here. We'll let you know what we think about Jesus. So because they organized good competitions, I'd enter them, and I'd spend a, a, a lot of time on the beach sitting in cars with Christians at these competitions listening to their music playing, and I didn't know it. I didn't understand it. I'd never heard it before. Bands like the Altar Boys and Mortification and the 77s and Mike Knott. And I found out that these were Christian bands that, instead of singing about love gone wrong, or political fracture, or the emptiness of life, or or hedonism, they were actually singing about how Jesus was with them in their struggles, and how He rescued them. But you know what? It wasn't cheesy. When I listen to it now, it's cheesy, but back then, it was actually quite cool, even for me, who I wasn't a Christian. Um, I remember someone at one of those competitions giving me a cassette or two, and, and I took them home, and um, how lying late at night listening to those cassettes in my bedroom um, helped prepare my heart for what God was, was going to come and do. So music was really important to me, and music is a beautiful thing. The best music always tries to unify the rational mind, with the emotional heart, and it grapples with our common struggles. I think you'll agree that the the best music, the ones that most people listen to, are the ones that resonate with us. They're not so specific that they miss somebody. They they somehow harness a, a sense or a feeling that we can interpret and make our own, and it helps us to to deal with the struggles of life. I don't know if that's true of much modern pop music but maybe that's giving my age away. I just can't really hear the purpose, the depth, the, 
the, the struggling with, with common issues. It sounds more like it's just about consumerism and what cereal's best. Um, for Israel, their soundtrack, their way of expressing the emotional and rational, their way of reaching out of the, the mundane every day into the divine was the Psalms. And um, their soundtrack was very, very similar to mine in many, many ways. And in other ways, very different. Radically different. The similarities, as I've said, is, is music is always a way of grappling with hard things, deep concepts, universal struggles. And the best songs always resonate with that broad range of people and can kind of pull out something from within their hearts that they, they don't necessarily want to deal with on a day-to-day basis, but the music helps them to deal with it. It connects the emotional with the, the rational. And um, the difference really is, sorry, that in the similarities there, the Psalms do this. I mean, sometimes you look at the Psalms and you can think, well, either they're just a bunch of moaning or they, they're terribly triumphal. They, they sound like, oh, this is all very good news. That isn't real for any of us. But when you look at them carefully, and when you look at the psalm carefully, you'll realize they're anything but triumphal. They say good things about a good God in the middle of very difficult times, and they acknowledge that difficult time. The difference is that my soundtrack points to resolution or rest in a multitude of places. Israel's always points to Yahweh as the resolution of their struggles. Always. And these are their songs that, I mean... Really, these are the songs that Israel would have been singing if they were in the modern age. They would have been singing when they were in their cars, when they were making their dinner, when they were hard at work, when they were hanging out in a restaurant, when they were celebrating at a wedding or grieving at a funeral, or perhaps sitting alone at a bar feeling like everything has fallen apart. I'd be listening to REM at that point. You know, everybody hurts sometimes. Everybody cries. But they would be listening to the Psalms. It was always God. My resolution, my solution that my songs offered me were alcohol, drugs, sex, other people, isolation, death, money, art, self-expression, power, anything but God. Anything but God. And as we've heard over the last few weeks... The Psalms of Ascent were were special in that they were expressly written for pilgrims on their way up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, this this was a physical act of pilgrimage to a physical temple in a a physical Jerusalem, but it was symbolic of a, a spiritual pilgrimage to a future perfect heavenly kingdom. And that is true of us today. The Psalms are still songs of ascent for people on a pilgrimage. We are those people. We are looking to a future kingdom and we are walking to a future Jerusalem. And that walk was accompanied by songs that echoed the reality of Israel's current experience. It echoed their source of their hope in the midst of those experiences and the source of their joy of a future free from suffering, slavery, and death in a renewed heaven and earth. So, just very quickly, remember the structure, because 125 is not in a historical context, but it is in a textual context. And we've got to remember that... um, Can we pop over to the... Yeah. The the structure, remember this. It was four sets of three that repeat a theme. 
going through a stress, deliverance from that, and then what it's like to be home. And then we end the Psalms of Ascent with three Psalms about being in God's holy city. So today, I get to preach to you out of a happy psalm. This is one of the positive ones. Now, I don't often get this. I think, I say to Stuart, Stuart, sometimes I think you're always giving me the heavy one. Um, Or maybe it's just that I see the heaviness in every scripture. (laughs) Maybe it's my fault, I don't know. But this is a happy one. Um, And the contemporary song that I've chosen for this particular psalm is... Okay, brilliant, thank you. Right, so safe and sound. That's the point. I don't know about the rest of dancing and all of that. That's really happy and all of that, but that's a happy song. And, and it's kind of positive about life. Do any of you recognize it? Because normally we've done, gone with cheesy 80s numbers or 90s numbers. No? Okay, a little bit more obscure. So well done to those of you that are cultured. Um, <laughs> Let's read the text. I think I'm just going to move across here, but pull out your Bibles, otherwise it's going to be on the side, on on the projector there. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. Scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteousness, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evil. Peace be upon Israel. Right. Now, Jerusalem was never quite what it should be. Just remember that. It was never perfect. It was never quite the way the psalmist would have desired. It didn't quite look like the picture that the prophets had in their hearts of what God's kingdom would look like or what God's holy city would look like. It's in that context that these words are spoken. Now, remember, we've said that historically, we're not quite sure where the psalm fits. It could fit anywhere in Israel's history. And if you look at Israel's history... They could have been going on pilgrimage to Jerusalem at different times with different challenges. It could have been under corrupt Israelite kings. It could have been under the rule of of pagan kings. It could have been under the rule of of kings that were, were righteous and were trying to do the right thing, but didn't necessarily go along with God's plan. They thought they knew better. It was very rare that there was a time like in the time of David. And even in the time of David, there were challenges for Israel. 
And the same is true for Christians. If we, if we look at how they were persecuted by, by the Jews in the early church and then moved on to being persecuted by the Romans or becoming corrupt in the Middle Ages, supporting slavery or being slaves, Christians on both sides of that divide historically, being burned at the stake for distributing Bibles, being imprisoned for not conforming to the religion of the day. It's always been a a case of, you know what, we've got this picture of what God's kingdom looks like, but we live with a reality that's not quite aligned to that beautiful picture. A quick example out of history, in 1873, the small town in in America called Chicago um, suffered with some, some massive fires, and those fires caused financial ruin for many. And in the wake of this, uh, a gentleman by the name of Horatio Spafford sent his wife and his daughters to England to try and get them away from the situation. But he was only to learn that on that journey, his daughters drowned in an accidental collision at sea. And um, he went and he made that same voyage, and he stopped at the place where their ship went down and where his, his daughters drowned. And when he was there... He wrote the words of a beautiful hymn which we sing, which captures beautifully with simplicity and faith what this Psalm 125 is saying. He wrote down there where his daughters drowned these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I don't think in our lives, in Becky's and my life, we could say that we've suffered nearly as much as some of the early saints or Horatio Spafford, but there have been struggles nonetheless. I know sometimes it's hard to get behind the Facebook exterior, um, you know, that we live our lives perfectly and we, we're free of, of all struggle, and sometimes people think that maybe because we're fairly upbeat, um, we seem positive and And maybe that means that everything is going just perfectly. But here's the interesting thing. Trust in God is amazing. It causes you to live in struggle and in in adversity as though there were none. And you know why that is? Because that struggle, that adversity is actually inconsequential when compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. I mean... I don't know if I've shared this before, but when we moved to the UK, the first two years, we moved in 2008, I thought that was a great idea, um, moving into a recession. And then I thought it would be really good to move to Cornwall as well. And we had an amazing time in Cornwall, but in a lot of ways, it was like a working holiday. We made good friends, I got to spend a lot of time surfing, Um, we had some great church people around us. Um, We got to be influential for the kingdom, but I was earning less than a thousand pounds a month for two years. I was working as a gas and electric meter reader because I couldn't get a job as anything else for those two years. Um, And essentially, we survived those two years because we sold a house in South Africa and we lived off the proceeds of that. Um, A lot of people don't know that. If I didn't have God 
in that time and a sense of understanding that he's drawn us here and called us to the UK, I'm pretty sure I would have gone back, taken my family away from a situation where I was eating into my equity and um, looking at a cliff edge at some point in the future. But because I knew that God had called us, we persevered. A lot of people don't know that because we don't necessarily shout about our suffering or struggles, but I'm so glad we did. I'm so glad we stuck it. I'm so glad we stood, stood on our faith in what God had called us to do. The most joyful songs, like Horatio Spafford's, come from a deep-seated assurance that we are safe in the hands of an all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present God, regardless of the circumstances. And Psalm 125 is one of those songs. So let's have a quick look at it in a bit more detail. First off, if you look at the structure of the psalm, you'll notice that the first two verses and the last two verses are bracketed around the third verse, which reminds us that all is not right in Israel. And that bracketing gives us a way, it gives us a formula to deal with everything that's not right in our own lives. The first two verses are an expression of trust in the Lord's power to save and secure His people. And the last two are a prayer that God would do what is right. And in the center, if you look at verse 3, is the assurance that God is in control of even those who are in authority and that ultimately, even if they who are in authority raise their hands up against God, He is still in authority and control over them. So then that first verse, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. This verse reminds us that if we trust in the Lord, we are secure. Now, it's quite interesting because often we talk about God as being secure, but this verse says that we are, we are secure. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. So it's our action, our trust, our faith, and our stability that that verse has in in mind. And then verse 2 cuts over to the Lord, to God. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. So these two verses are meant to be pictured they, they use word pictures. Those who trust are like, and as the mountains surround Jerusalem, the Lord is. So these pictures would have been reinforced as the pilgrims were walking towards Jerusalem. Geographically, Jerusalem is a mount. We know about that already. But what we don't know is it was a mount surrounded by other mountains. And those mountains protected Jerusalem from external attack. It made it safe. And so, here we have a picture of a God that surrounds His people and keeps them safe, even as they are like Mount Zion that cannot be moved. It's a picture of remarkable security and stability. It would have been so reassuring to the people walking to Jerusalem, and it should be very reassuring to us who are the people who have come after that pilgrimage and have the privilege of knowing what Christ has achieved already, and that 
Israel's Messiah has come. So he surrounds them. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Now this is the verse that acknowledges that the promised land is being ruled by a wicked nation or a wicked ruler. The scepter of the wicked implies authority, but it's not specified who that authority is at the time. But it also makes clear that it will not remain so. And it also, on top of that, makes clear that it will not remain so because of the Lord's action. It reminds God's people that they should not be raising their hand to intervene before God ordains it. He will remove the scepter so that we don't need to, and in so doing, sin. It's an interesting challenge for some of us. You know, a lot of us have been taught to stand up and fight for your right, you know what I mean? It's, uh, but here is, is a, a call by God to His people to say, rest in me. Verse 4, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. And verse 5 then, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. So here we've got the prayer, a call from the people to, to God to do good to those who are upright. And the following verse, a, a bit of a, a warning. Uh, some people would look at it as judgmental, but I think it's maybe a, a warning internally to Israel, that um, warning them not to be tempted to turn away to false worship that will, will, will draw them away from God. What it's really saying is, God, deliver justice, do what is right, fulfill your promises, and, and the Scripture ends with a benediction, peace be upon Israel. The whole thing ends with peace. Because of this approach to life, be at peace with yourself, be at peace with others, and be at peace with those that are in authority over you. And to me, the bottom line, key message of the Scripture is, that real strength, true security comes from trusting God. And it tells us to trust God for two reasons. Number one, trust God because He protects. Remember I said those two verses are meant to be imagined. They're meant to be pictured. And the picture is of an impenetrable fortress, one of sturdiness and stability and ruggedness resilience, there's a nice British word for you, British values, not one of frailty and uncertainty or weakness. This image is meant to tell the pilgrims something about the nature of their faith. Your faith, if you trust in the Lord, your faith is like a strong, sturdy fortress that is impenetrable. Your faith is not like frail, fresh-cut flowers that need to be constantly watered, otherwise they wither and die. It's not timid and fearful. It's not like a leap into the dark where you feel vulnerable and exposed. It's like living in a stronghold. Secondly, it teaches us to trust God because God promises. The whole second half from verse 3, 4, and 5 is a, a promise. The second half promises that God will do right, and that promise explains the confidence that the psalmist can have in the first half. The promise in this psalm 
is essentially that third verse, that God will not allow the scepter of the wicked to remain in the land allotted to the righteous. There are four results of this promise in the lives of those people, and we should see in us. Firstly, they trust Him to judge. They trust Him to judge. And therefore, do not raise their own hands to do wrong. Secondly, they are confident in His protection and so can pray with assurance that He continues to do good to those who are upright in heart. I just want to remind you of something here. Upright in heart, according to the Bible, is those who are justified, those who are, who are saved by faith in God, not those who do everything right. Israel knew, as we do, that you can try your darndest to do absolutely everything right, and you're never going to get there. So when we think about the upright in heart and His protection of them, doing good to them, think about those that are justified by faith. Thirdly, they're wary, they're anxious about turning away from God. They don't want to turn away from Him because they understand what I've just mentioned. They understand that their confidence is not in their own merits, but in in God's own work. And so, to turn against that is a very difficult thing to do. And fourthly, they are urged to be at peace with themselves and with others because of this confidence. That is it. That's what the psalm teaches. In terms of application, we just need to remember this. We who have met the living Christ are all pilgrims on a journey to a promised destination. Our struggles are real and should not be denied, but our well of hope is deep and our hearts should be drawing water from there. And this hope This joy manifests itself in songs that express the source of our hope. An all-encompassing, promise-keeping God who will not leave us nor forsake us, who promises that the scepter of wickedness, no matter what that scepter is, and I'm sure we can all think of a couple of things in our lives, whether they be macro or micro, people that have possibly authority or issues that seem to have authority in our lives, all the way through to larger issues around the government. He will not let the scepter of wickedness rest on the land that has been allotted to the righteous, to his people. He reminds us that we are to avoid the temptation of raising our own hand to ensure our own salvation, doing good works, trying in our our own might to give God a helping hand, and thereby do wrong, and rather turn to God in prayer for justice. Just a a quick example before I go into the application properly of of giving God a helping hand. Um, Oh, I've forgotten the name of the king. One of the kings of Israel, somebody correct, give me the name when you you recognize the story. One of the kings of Israel was looking after Jerusalem, and he, he, he thought there was something slightly wrong with the design of Jerusalem. 
God had done a great job in, in a lot of the geography. This is a good place, except for the fact that there was no water source in the city. So if there was um, a siege, we'd run out of water quickly. So Hezekiah, he built an aqueduct that meant that Jerusalem had water. But Isaiah rebuked him for doing it. And the, the reason he was rebuked wasn't because it was a stupid thing to do. It was a very clever thing to do militarily, a very clever thing to do if you're thinking about defense of a city. But Isaiah rebuked him because it, it questioned God's plan. It assumed that he knew better than God. And the challenge for us in our day and age and in our personal lives is to think about this. Are there times when we raise our hands to give God a helping hand in bringing around our salvation or deliverance from a particular situation that aren't necessarily bad things, but they make the assumption that God doesn't know what he's doing? I've been trying to think about a few examples, and when I was talking to people about what I was going to say today, they were also asking, how do you know? How do you know when you're taking control or when you're doing what God's asked you to do? And I can't give you the answer to that specifically, but what I can say is, is you could test it very easily by checking when you feel like you have to take over. So, do that for me. Before we go into any of the other application, my challenge to you is, when is it that you need to rest in what God is doing and avoid the temptation to take over from Him because you feel like He's got it wrong? When, what are the situations like us in Cornwall where you have to say, I'm not going back to South Africa because that's where I'll find financial stability, but I'm going to continue persevering in this, even though it feels like everything's going downhill and we're about to fall off a cliff edge. Do I trust God enough to keep on this path with Him? Where are those places in your life? Back to the happy stuff, okay? So... In terms of application, there's a lot of stuff in there, and I want to talk about the application of what's in the psalm, but I was reminded time and time again that it is a song in a song book, and it's part of a soundtrack. And I think this is really important for us to take away, not just um, as a local congregation, but as a culture, because we have a song book. We have a soundtrack, and very often it doesn't line up with the soundtrack that the people of God should have in their lives. So here's my number one take-home for you. If you don't have some Christian music in your playlist, get some. Okay? Easy? Right. If you've got some, get more. Simple. Okay, so we're going to work on incremental improvement here. We're going to talk about moving you from 0% Christian music in your soundtrack to 95, 96, 97%. Then I'll be happy. So you can have a little bit of the secular stuff in there, but maybe just to stay contextually aware. All right. Okay. Because we've got a lot of difficult rubbish stuff in our minds and hearts to deal with, and we need a lot more positive soundtrack. And the reason for that is simple. There's something that music does to embed concepts or ideologies into your life and shape your worldview. It just does. 
It infuses your heart with words that shape your feelings, they shape your thoughts, and they shape your actions in a way that nothing else can. It connects you to past experiences. You remember smells and sights and sounds when you hear certain songs. It affirms or it challenges your heart in a way that nothing else could. It moves you in a direction like nothing else that I know. Believe me, and I'm saying this while I'm preaching to you, if you listen to somebody talking about Jesus Christ, and then you go away and you listen to music that speaks about anything but Jesus Christ, your heart and your mind for most of your life will be far from Him. But if you listen to music that speaks about Him, it somehow draws you closer to Him and closer to His ways. You'll find your heart being drawn to Him, your thoughts and actions pursuing Him, like Horatio Spafford's, or like mine when I got saved. Second thing then, in this particular psalm, the most important thing to note is that we need to trust God. It's easy to say that you trust God when you're actually putting your trust in money, insurance, and the government. It's really a totally different thing to say that you're trusting Him when money runs away, when insurance fails, and the, the government leaves you exposed. And you can stand there and say, I'm not phased by any of this. I understand the gravity of the situation, but I'm not phased. I trust God. Why? Because you know that He is ultimately in control. That's what the psalm says. He is in control, and He can be trusted to do the right thing. I'd suggest that the more that we know about God and His character, the more we'll be inclined to trust Him. And I would additionally suggest that the best way to learn about Him would be to look and read His Word. And I know we encourage you about this all the time. It's so important. Get into your Bibles. Read about Him. See how faithful He has been and how faithful He promises to be. Read it, meditate it, allow the Holy Spirit to make it real to you and your heart and learn to trust Him. Add that to singing songs about Him and it's just going to get better and better and better. But trust leads to a restful posture in life and I think this is the the core, if you want, to be able to rest because of his trust. When all others are panicking and wanting to take things into their own hands, the one that trusts God remains calm, does not feel threatened, and is unwilling to stick their oar in. I'm reminded of a, a, a member of the Sanhedrin called Gamaliel that um, when, when they were being asked about what to do about the Christian church, he mentioned that if this is of God, there's nothing you could do to stop it. So... You know, he he was the voice of reason. His trust was in God. Um, How are you feeling right now about Brexit, about the NHS, about the school your child is going to go to, about the fact that Wales is top of the Six Nations? How do you feel right now Trust in God and rest in His sovereignty. 
if he can be trusted to bring about your salvation and future perfection of all things, he can be trusted to work out the smallest little issues in your life. This isn't the same as fatalism, what will be will be. Because the psalm, as with the whole teaching of the Bible, doesn't leave us with nothing to do. It leaves us having a clear understanding of the challenges you face and a strong grasp of God's protection. And then it says to us, pray. We do need to stand up and oppose the things that come against us, but not by trying to improve on God's plan. We need to stand against injustice with God in prayer. And our prayer, like the prayer of Israel, shouldn't be an individualistic prayer. It's a prayer about the people of God. It's a prayer about the world. It's a prayer of justice. The the prayer in the psalm isn't directed directly, sorry, directed directly, directed at the scepter of wickedness. It's a prayer of of justice in a, a very general sense. Let us stand with God as these people did, and ask him to continue as he always has to do the right thing, not just for us as individuals, but for his people, the world over, and for the benefit of all of creation. Band, if you can come up, please, that'd be brilliant. So that's my challenge to you. Reading this psalm, looking at Israel, Think about the soundtrack of your life. Trust Him. Rest in Him because of your trust in Him. And pray with Him for justice as we sing songs about how great He is. So, Lord, I just want to thank You. I want to thank You first and foremost that Your Word tells us that For those of us who trust in you, we are secure. We are stable. We are solid. Our faith is unshakable. We cannot be moved. Your word also tells us that you surround us, that you protect us and keep us safe, that there is nothing that can break through the protection that you offer. And Lord, in the midst of us, in the midst of that, you you challenge us to stand with you with a restful posture, knowing that we are secure in you. You challenge us to stand with you and to pray for justice, for deliverance, and for for your promises to come to fruition in our lives and in this world that as we stand on the security of knowing that you, Jesus Christ, have died for us, and because of that we are able to access your courts boldly, we are also to stand with you and to pray for the future redemption of all things. Thank you, Lord. Amen.